On this week's 51%, we take a tour of the National Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls, New York. Executive Director Jennifer Gabriel previews the hall's latest class and shares her goals for the museum's expansion. I always think about it as, you know, the little girl who lives in Wyoming. I want her to experience a National Women's Hall of Fame in the same way that I was able to experience it as an eighth grader right here in the Finger Lakes. It's all up next on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh Alita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jesse King. This week, we're taking a field trip to Seneca Falls, New York. Now, Seneca Falls is an important location for women's history, being the site of the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, where activists like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, and Martha Wright signed the Declaration of Sentiments calling for equal rights for women. There are a lot of places we could visit in Seneca Falls and talk about, but today we're stopping at the National Women's Hall of Fame. It's been a part of the area for decades, but after years of renovations, it now occupies the historic Seneca Knitting Mill on Canal Street, in plain view of the recreated Wesleyan Chapel where the Seneca Falls Convention took place. So after saddling up a company vehicle and making my way west to Seneca County, I found my way to the Wool Mill, a large stone structure nestled by the Seneca Cayuga Canal. That's Natalie Rudd and Jennifer Gabriel. Rudd is the museum's learning and engagement manager, and after a six-month national search, Gabriel became the hall's new executive director in July. Gabriel says she spent the past two decades working in nonprofit organizations between New York, Colorado, and California, primarily in fundraising. And that might come in handy for the National Women's Hall of Fame as it grows into its new space and navigates the coronavirus pandemic. I got the chance to sit down with Gabriel for a bit, and I started by asking her about the hall's history and where she hopes to take it going forward. So the National Women's Hall of Fame is over 50 years old. We're the first and oldest um, organization and museum dedicated to telling the stories of great American women. The whole organization began in the late 60s when a woman named Shirley Hartley learned about the Hall of Great Americans, which was housed at New York University. And she was really troubled to learn that only a small portion of the people that were honored there were women. And being from Seneca Falls and working in Seneca Falls, she really felt strongly that this was the place that needed to house an organization dedicated specifically to celebrating women. And so she came back to Seneca Falls, gathered her friends and some associates and colleagues and created um, what she called the Founders Tea, which was an homage to the tea that Elizabeth Cady Stanton uh, first you know, organized with Susan B. Anthony and Lucretia Mott and all of the people that we associate with the women's rights movement. Um, so Shirley Hartley did a similar tea, and that was the impetus for the founding of the National Women's Hall of Fame. So a year later, in 1969, uh, we were incorporated as a nonprofit organization, and we've been right here in Seneca Falls ever since. Sometime in the late 70s, the organization moved um, from the basement of one of the local colleges to a small storefront on Fall Street in downtown Seneca Falls. And that's where we lived and thrived for 41 years. Eventually, we got to the point where we had outgrown that space. 
And so uh, in 2007, the organization embarked on a major campaign to purchase and renovate the building that we're in right now. So this is the Seneca Knitting Mill, which has been around since 1844 and was a producer of wool yarn and wool goods um, for its entire 155-year history. And one of the things I find really fascinating about this is that the history of the building that we're in now, the Seneca Knitting Mill, and the history of the National Women's Hall of Fame and the women's rights movement are really deeply intertwined. Some of the owners of the, of the Seneca Knitting Mill back in 1848, when the first women's rights convention was happening, were actually signers on the Declaration of Sentiments. The business itself um, was really committed to supporting women's rights um, and equity issues from the very beginning. We purchased the building in 2007. The National Women's Hall of Fame purchased the building in 2007 and began a extensive campaign to renovate the building. It actually, what you see today is a stone structure with a brick smokestack. It's incredibly beautiful right on the, on the shores of the Seneca Cuga Canal. And at the time that we purchased it, it had really fallen into disrepair. So it was a building that went um, out of business, Seneca Knitting Mill went out of business in 1999. So it had been largely neglected, it needed a new roof, new windows, and so the organization embarked on this initiative to make this our new home and cause an incredible amount of fundraising um, and community support, um, not just here in Seneca Falls, but across the nation. We were able to move into this building in August of 2020, so we've, it's just been just over a year since we've been here. To get back to your question about sort of where the organization is going and sort of what's on the horizon, um, it's really threefold. So the first is to fit to complete the Seneca Knitting Mill project and to have four floors of exhibits and event space and spaces that are designed to create interactive educational experiences for people of all ages, all genders, you know, from all across the country. The second is to ensure that our induction ceremony, which happens every two years, is the premier uh, event that celebrates great American women and their achievements. And then the third piece is to launch a series of programs that inspire people across the nation and bring us together to have important conversations about you know, all of the issues that women face and continuing to use our inductees and their stories as a way to showcase how far we've come, sort of what the dynamics are now being a woman in the United States and where we're going in the future. So we're incredibly fortunate. We have 293 inductees in total in the National Women's Hall of Fame. Um, about a third of them are still alive and actively engaged in the organization and wanting to see us grow and thrive and to share their stories um, with the nation. So we'll be utilizing our relationships with them you know, for panel discussions, events, you know, post-COVID, we hope to actually have in-person events across the country and really building up that national profile and. I always think about it as, you know, the little girl who lives in Wyoming. I want her to experience a National Women's Hall of Fame in the same way that I was able to experience it as an eighth grader right here in, in the Finger Lakes. So that's the overall trajectory. So you've got 293 inductees in the Hall of Fame. How does the induction process work and what's the status of the Hall of Fame during the pandemic? The National Women's Hall of Fame accepts nominations for inductees from the public. It really is a public-driven effort, and so anyone can make a nomination through our website. Um, the requirements to be inducted into the Hall of Fame are that you are an American citizen, either by birth or by naturalization, and that you have contributed something that has national significance and enduring value. 
So anyone that falls into those criteria can be nominated for the National Women's Hall of Fame. Then we have a whole judging process and, and go through a pretty intensive research and conversation process, um, and then eventually select the classes that we are able to induct into the Hall of Fame. Right now, we do induction every two years. And this year's class, which is nine extraordinary women, we had hoped to induct actually this coming Saturday on October 2nd. And um, obviously with COVID and the Delta variant spiking, we were having a lot of conversations towards the end of the summer. And you know we had upwards of a thousand people traveling from all across the United States to come here to Seneca Falls to celebrate these women. Uh, and overall, it was the right decision for the health of our community and the health of our nation to postpone the event. And so the new date is September 23rd to 25th, 2022. And what this additional runway has allowed us to do as we approach that new date is to really celebrate this class of inductees in a way that we have not been able to do in the past and hopefully set the tone for how um, all future inductions are able to uh, take place, where we really can spend some dedicated time unpacking and telling the stories of the great American women that we are honoring, building that energy and excitement, introducing more people to the themes and to the stories that they tell, um, and then to really have a great celebration you know, at the actual induction ceremony. Let's talk about some of these women then. Uh, who is in the latest class? So the 2022 induction ceremony will be honoring the achievements of Octavia Butler, Judy Chicago, Rebecca Halstead, Mia Hamm, Joy Harjo, Emily Howland, Katherine Johnson, Indra Nui, and Michelle Obama. So it's a pretty incredible class of women um, whose achievements range from the arts to politics, to science, to the military. I mean, it's a really exceptional, exceptional class of women. Obviously, I think most people are familiar with names like Michelle Obama and Mia Hamm, but tell me about some of the inductees people might not be as familiar with. So Octavia Butler became the first science fiction writer and one of the first black women to receive a MacArthur Genius Fellowship grant. Um, she's the author of many, many books that have inspired people ranging from Amanda Gorman to LeVar Burton to Viola Davis. I mean, she's really, she was a very quiet author and somebody who did not love the limelight. So she used her words and her books to really inspire action and to tell important stories that needed to be told. Judy Chicago is an incredible artist. And in 1974, she created her most well-known work, which is called The Dinner Party. Um, which was she produced with hundreds of volunteers. The idea of the installation was to provide a symbolic history of women in Western civilization by actually creating a dinner party plate set for each of these um, women that would be around a dinner party table. The piece is now permanently installed in the Brooklyn Museum. I highly recommend that people go and take a look at it because it's really incredible and it was very provocative for its time. You know, now she's she does all kinds of art all across the country, all kinds of teaching, and is able to really highlight how art actually plays a huge role in our world. Becky Halstead is amazing. She's from here in the Finger Lakes. She grew up in Candor, which is actually in Wilseyville, which is um, right outside of Ithaca, and went on to serve in the military. She became the first female in U.S. history to command in combat at the strategic level. 
She's done a lot of work since um, retiring from the military in terms of leadership and talking about sort of the perception of women in the military versus the reality and really lifting women um, who serve our country in a really substantial way. And through her teachings, she actually expands beyond the military and works to inspire all of us, regardless of the sectors that we're in. Incredible person. Um, and she's, you know, we're very excited that she's going to be a part of the National Women's Hall of Fame. Joy Harjo is a multidisciplinary artist. She's a poet, a musician, a playwright, a painter, an author. She's done a lot of work and various pieces of art. And she draws on First Nations storytelling. The pieces of, of work that she has done really allow those indigenous voices to come out in ways that they have not been able to in the past. Katherine Johnson. So Katherine Johnson's story, um, which most people know from the movie Hidden Figures, really highlights how often women's stories and women's achievements have been overlooked, um, especially in STEM fields, although actually across all disciplines, um, that is the case. And unfortunately, Catherine passed away in 2020, but her daughters have been very involved with us and are looking forward to working to continue telling the story of her mom and also lifting up all women who feel like they have been overlooked in some way, shape or form. And what's so fascinating about these women um, that we induct into the National Women's Hall of Fame is even the people that tend to be more well-known, like Michelle Obama or Mia Hamm, there's aspects of their stories that still aren't told. And so that's one of the things that we really try to do is highlight um, not just this, the women and their achievements, but also some of the things that may be lesser known about their work in the world. So it sounds like this has been a big year for the museum. You moved into a new building in the middle of a pandemic. The induction ceremony was also postponed by the pandemic. How are you faring during COVID? Because for a lot of museums, this has been a pretty difficult time. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a great question. It's really been an interesting trajectory. So lots of things that we don't like about COVID, lots of ways in which the pandemic has really stifled growth and progress. In other ways, though, it's opened us up to new technologies and new ways of connecting to one another. And although we've all got some level of Zoom fatigue, I think we've learned in a really powerful way that we can still connect to one another through a digital platform. You know, the organization itself moved in the height of the pandemic last August into this new building. We've had to go through a lot of different phases of reservation systems and, you know, limiting the number of people in the gallery at any given time. Those restrictions remain to this day. But at the same time, it allowed us to really go national in a, in a new and, and intriguing way. So Natalie was brought in to actually create programming um, and to do the organization's first virtual induction ceremony. So last year after George Floyd's death um, and the national conversation that ignited around the way that especially black men and women in this country have often been overlooked, the organization made a decision to host a virtual induction series, which we will plan to do you know, every year or two, to really highlight the accomplishments of an overlooked group of women. Last year's virtual induction, which was our first one ever, focused on black women who are no longer with us and whose stories deserve to be told. Flowing from that was a series of programs that we call the Forum. 
that's a national effort to ignite conversations with our inductees, with you know other experts in the field, and really to advance some of these conversations that need to be had around gender and equality and equity, and really being able to you know dive deeply into some of the topics that we don't normally get to talk about. So it's been really exciting, and we've been doing okay. Tourism has picked up throughout the summer. Um, we've been seeing more and more visitors. Leaf peeping season is coming, so that's always a, a very busy time in Seneca Falls. And you know, in terms of fundraising, really being able to celebrate our inductees and um, create these programs that are going to inspire people across the nation is very attractive to a lot of corporate partners and business partners and, and individual donors. And so we're having a lot of conversations with people about what philanthropy can do and how we can really use it to not just sustain operations, but really grow them over time. Lastly, I guess to just sort of sum everything up, why do you feel it's important to have a museum dedicated to women and women's history? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, I can't speak enough to how important it is. I think we all want to be able to see ourselves in history and we all want to know our place in history. And, you know, the women's rights movement began in 1848. It's not that old. Um, it's only maybe five generations of, of women that have, have come um, since that time. We've, as a nation, really deserve to prioritize the accomplishments of 51% of our entire nation. One of the really troubling facts that I learned a couple of weeks ago is that of all of the statues and monuments across the nation, only 8% are dedicated to telling the stories of American women. And that's a really troubling fact that, you know, in most places, if you walk around and look at public art, you're not going to see the face of a woman in that. And so having an organization like the National Women's Hall of Fame is truly important for not just little kids who will grow up never knowing a time when a woman couldn't be vice president, you know, let alone the governor of the state of New York, but also to inspire all generations and all people um, that we have made significant contributions. We are a viable part of this uh, country and our ideas and our stories matter. And so that is what we seek to um, inspire people to understand when they walk through our doors and to leave with a better appreciation, maybe learning about um, a woman that they never knew about before, um, or just feeling the inspiration that, yes, there's a community here that does believe and support in women and in women's history and you know, the enduring value of the accomplishments that women make. Right now, the National Women's Hall of Fame occupies just the first floor of the Seneca Knitting Mill, with the upper three floors still largely unfinished. Walking through the front door, you're greeted by a number of exhibits on its inductees, the women's rights movement, and even the Seneca Knitting Mill itself. Learning and Engagement Manager Natalie Rudd says the plan is to eventually expand those exhibits into the upper floors, and possibly even offer event space down the line. We'll go upstairs in a minute, but first we ought to check out the hall itself. In the past, Rudd says each inductee would have their own plaque and portrait along the museum's walls. But with so many inductees, they don't currently have the wall space to do that. Instead, inductees' names are listed on long scrolls, hung in a circle at the center of the floor. Alongside the scrolls are iPads connected to the website, where Rudd says anyone can access detailed bios for each of the inductees. 
So what I always do with my guests, so like when we have guests come and visit, I always tell them, you're gonna see a lot of names that you recognize. I mean, there's, you're gonna see the Gloria Steinem's, Lucille Ball, Maya Angelou, people who you've definitely heard of. Um, but you're gonna see a lot of names that you probably don't recognize. And I tell everybody to find one name that sticks out or maybe they worked in a field that you work in. It's like if you work in STEM, go and find Ruth Patrick, um, 2009 inductee. It says Ruth Patrick, STEM and Health and Education and Activism. You can go and then read her bio and then learn a little bit about her. Um, because I can guarantee not many people have heard of her. I was gonna say, like, what did Bruce Patrick do? I don't know, actually. You want, we, we can go <laughs> find out, though. Yeah. So you can see her full bio. She was a pioneer in limnology, which is the scientific study of the life and phenomena of freshwater bodies. She provided methods needed to monitor water pollution and understand its effects. Wow. She was born in 1907 and passed away in 2013. And she began as an unpaid researcher and volunteer curator at the Academy of Natural Sciences. She then, her pioneering work, which began in the 1940s and later was dubbed the Patrick Principle, became the fundamental principle on which all environmental science and management is based. Patrick proved that biological diversity holds the key to understanding the environmental problems affecting the ecosystem. That's really cool. So that's, I mean, that's kind of the fun part is uh, you can just pick a name and read something really cool about a woman that I would have never known about. Um, and you get to learn their stories a bit. Some of our inductees, um, when you Google them, if you were to just Google them, sometimes we are one of the only people that pops up as having information about them, which is, I mean, sad. We want everybody to know about them. But it also really shows us that we're doing our job because otherwise a lot of these stories might get lost in history and we would have never heard about them or their successes might be attributed to somebody else. Um, which then kind of brings me, we have this other exhibit over here that is called, um, more colloquially, we call it the Matilda Effect. So it's designed to tell the stories of women's achievements or accomplishments that have been overlooked throughout their lifetime or have been attributed to men. So I'll walk over here. I don't want to like make the sound weird. Oh no. Um, okay, good. Um, so normally these are little doors you can open and close. So this one, um, it shows, we learned Felix Mendelssohn was a brilliant composer. Then you open it like a book and it says, and yet his sister, Fanny Mendelssohn was equally talented. She composed over 460 works of music during her lifetime, even though her father tried to prohibit her from playing the piano and violin until she turned 15. Fanny showed her songs to Felix, who published several under his name. So it tells stories of women like Fanny, and it's named after a woman named Matilda Jocelyn Gage. Uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage was a suffragist. She's one of our inductees, and I always say this is another great example of the untold stories, because she was a suffragist, and she was a contemporary of women that everyone's probably heard of, you know, Susan B. Anthony, Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. However, she was a little more radical, especially during her lifetime, with a lot of her viewpoints um, on women's rights, religion, and for that, she broke off from a lot of the various suffrage parties and um, didn't get as much credit or as much, I guess, I don't know, screen time. Some of her contemporaries, I guess that's the modern way of saying it. 
And additionally to that, she wrote a book in the late 1800s that I believe was called Women Scientists or Women Inventors. And it was all about women who have actually invented um, things like uh, the cotton gin, supposedly was invented by a woman, but then Eli Whitney took that idea. Um, that was what she was writing about in her book. So then later on, historians kind of coined this term of women in STEM, specifically who have been looked over as the Matilda effect. And now it's meant more broad as just women in general and women's accomplishments who have been overlooked. And she what, is now an inductee, but in our first class of inductees, we had Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but Matilda Jocelyn Gage wasn't inducted until almost 20, 30 years later. So for us, we're also still learning our kind of holes in our history that we don't know about, which is why we rely on the public so much to help us nominate people and fill in some of those holes. Um, we'll see guests when they come and visit through spend, I'd say the average visit is about 30 to 45 minutes, but I've also seen guests spend three, four hours here because they'll get sucked into the bios and just sit there reading bios for hours, which is, I love seeing because you really can't ever get bored of them. <laughs> Could we check out the upstairs? Absolutely. Let me grab Jen. I think she wanted to come up with us. Okay. Hey, Jen, you want to go upstairs? The upper floors are closed to the public, but Rudd says she still loves taking the occasional visitor up the spiral staircase because while the upper floors are still unfinished, they demonstrate just how far the building has come over the past 10 plus years. Rudd says the old roof was caving in, and as a result, the exterior walls had begun to buckle and bend outward. For years, she says the building was known by locals for the big blue tarp wrapped around its top floor because the roof couldn't actually be replaced until the exterior walls were pulled straight millimeter by millimeter, day by day. The interior still features most of the original flooring and exposed beams. There's graffiti from the building's vacant years, but Rudd says a lot of the signatures along the walls are those of former employees of the wool mill. Rudd says the museum is working on installing an elevator to make the building more accessible, but for the most part, they want to preserve the memory of those workers. So that's one of the reasons why we actually chose this building to be our new home, is because the history not only aligned with the region so well, um, the Seneca Knitting Mill had a lot of different names as a company throughout its years, but it really stood as a place of industry. It employed generations of Seneca Falls area folks, um, and the history really aligns with the women's rights movement, with those original trustees having signed the Declaration of Sentiments, as well as they were also abolitionists. Um, so one of the reasons this was a wool knitting mill, opposed to say a cotton knitting mill, was because not only did we have a lot of sheep farmers in the area, but the um, owners were abolitionists and they didn't want to support the cotton industry because of its links to enslavement and the slave trade. Um, which is really, I think that history ties into a lot of what we're doing now today as well. I like to point out these two pillars. So this pillar right here is called the goodbye pillar. The goodbye pillar was originally found in the basement of the building when they were doing reconstruction, and it was signed by all of the employees on their last day of work here at the mill. So we kept it, brought it upstairs, and put it in our galleries, and then we found another uh, pillar that then we painted over with white, and we now call it the inductee pillar. So whenever any of our inductees come and visit Seneca Falls, they sign the inductee pillar so that we have their uh, signatures here on display for everybody to see. The National Women's Hall of Fame is open from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day except Wednesday, and due to the coronavirus pandemic, it's strongly recommended that visitors get time tickets in advance.
Its next Hall of Fame class is set to be inducted on September 23rd through 25th, 2022, and you can find a link with more info at wamc.org. Thanks for tuning in to this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. I'm Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks to Jennifer Gabriel and Natalie Rudd for giving me a tour of the National Women's Hall of Fame. If you like what you're hearing, check us out on Facebook and Instagram at 51% Radio. And you can find episodes new and old at wamcpodcasts.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we take to the streets and look back on the Occupy Wall Street movement. But until then, again, I'm Jesse King with 51%. I was every single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way. At night and on the hallway. I had to learn how to look away. I lost my cool. No electricity. Hot rain on the concrete. Sweet. Day.